Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis, Cats at Night, the number one show at 5 o'clock in, in the whole East Coast. And uh, uh, with us today is we have... Uh, Judge Richard Weinberg, we have Ed Cox, a common sense Republican, and Craig Eaton, another common sense Republican. The Republicans are out uh, doing you two to one today, uh, Judge. No, I think, it? I think it's fair. I think Can you handle it? Better be careful, Judge. Better be In the studio with us, Lydia Serrani. Lydia, it's getting dark out there. It's getting dark, and Thanksgiving is just around the corner, but it feels like winter out there. Five weeks to the new year. Nobody's ever said that yet. Uh-oh. Well, we got a hot show tonight. First on the line, we have Professor Alan Dershowitz, just a couple of decades at Harvard Law. His latest book, The Price of Principle, he's also a constitutional scholar. Welcome back to Cats at Night, Professor Dershowitz. Hey, you think it's dark there. I'm in Tel Aviv, where it's a midnight, and it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you from the Holy Land. You're still on vacation? My God! No, I'm not on vacation. I'm meeting people in the government. I'm trying to make sure I learn everything there possibly is about Israel, because I go around the world defending Israel on the court of public opinion on university campuses, and I have to be up to date. So I'm Have you met with Netanyahu yet? But Professor, do they have a government? Well, that's the point. I meet with Netanyahu after he gets the government. Uh, That's supposed to be in a couple of days. But, you know, there are two elections in Israel. One, to see how many people from each party go to the Knesset. And then there's usually a couple of weeks of negotiation among the parties, who gets what cabinet posts. uh, And and, uh, it's still going on. And it's very, very contentious. And nobody knows exactly what the government will look like, except that Netanyahu will be the head of it. Now, Professor, the Supreme Court of the United States said to Trump, turn over your uh, your your, yeah. your tax records, tax records to the Congress. Now, this Congress goes away January second. Mm. So, if, if right. Trump and if Trump just turns them over very slowly, one page at a time, <laughs> what's the penalty? Well, you know, these tax returns are probably, if you put them on the floor, would hit the ceiling. They're very, very large. And obviously, he has the right to go through them to make sure there's nothing self-incriminating, nothing involving privileges. So probably the time will benefit him. Look, I'm not sure I like this Supreme Court decision, even though it's nine to nothing. The Congressional Committee. Nine to nothing. My God. Yeah. Yeah. The Supreme Court, though, the, the, the Congressional Committee said they wanted it. Because it will help them legislate. That's nonsense. They only want it because it's Donald Trump. And they want to look at his tax returns. They don't like the fact that he's the first person ever to be president who didn't provide the tax returns. But I I think the argument that the Congressional Committee makes was a phony argument. That was not the real reason that they wanted it. But I guess the Supreme Court can't go behind the the uh, alleged uh, reasons given by the Congressional Committee, so they have to vote the way they did. But it doesn't pass the smell test. That's not what the committee is interested in, passing legislation. They're interested in just seeing Trump's return to see if anything wrong with it. It's clearly an invasion of privacy well, to, to ask the president to well, disclose. The, the, Trump's, Trump's biggest fear is it's not as large as he right. has told yeah. people. Yeah, that's right, right. Uh, Professor yeah, Dershowitz, you know. I want to talk about interesting situations. The appointment of Jack Smith as a special counsel. What do yeah. you think about this? And do you think this gentleman is a credible investigator objectively? 
given his background? Well, he, he has this remarkable uh, experience being a state prosecutor, federal prosecutor, and an international prosecutor. He was a prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. Generally has quite a good reputation. He's been on the Democrat side. He was appointed, obviously, during the Obama administration. I don't like special prosecutors. Why don't I like them? Because they come with a target. Usually prosecutors just look to see who's committed crimes. But when you have a special prosecutor, he has one job, one job to, to find a crime. One guy. Yeah. And, you know, just like they say to a hammer, everything is a nail to a special prosecutor. He's the guy. And I don't like that. I've never liked it. I didn't like it when it was directed against Clinton. I didn't like it when it was directed against some other previous cabinet members. It may be a necessary evil. And, you know, Justice Scalia thought it was unconstitutional. And so, you know, there's a real debate about it. Uh, but on the other hand, to have Garland make the decision whether to prosecute the man who is running against his boss, that also doesn't seem right. So, you know, it, it, there are two wrongs here, and there's no real right. But Smith himself, Alan, Smith himself is connected to the Obamas, is connected to the, yeah. to the Bidens. Couldn't you find somebody who had an objective resume, had no connection politically, not making contributions, not doing work for them? Yeah, Judge, and when you say that, he, she, his wife directly worked with Michelle Obama. They've donated money to Bidens. The, the Bidens, Obama, as well as Rashida Tlaib, a member of the squad. Right. So why, of all the lawyers and law school deans and federal judges out there, why couldn't they find somebody who had an impeccable resume with no question? I think it calls no, into... I think they could have. Look, the same questions were raised about uh, Ken Starr, um, who was a special prosecutor in Clinton case. He was clearly Republican. He had been a Republican appointee, a solicitor general in the Justice Department. In America today, it's very hard to find anybody who isn't on one side or the other. But I agree with you. I think particularly political contributions and working closely with the wife of the president, those do raise questions. Look, it's an impossible job. Nobody's going to be satisfied with the results. If he ends up prosecuting him, half the country is going to say he was biased. If he ends up not prosecuting him, the other half of the country is going to say he was biased. So it's a thankless job. Nobody who's ever been a special prosecutor has ever gone anywhere after that. Ken Starr could have been on the Supreme Court if he had turned down the job. But he was a patriot and he decided to take it. And he, I think, knew he was giving up the prospect of being a Supreme Court justice. And I think, you know, Smith probably realizes he's toward the end of his career. So it's something that he feels uh, obliged to do as a, as a patriot. Uh, could they have gotten somebody who is less visibly tied to the Democrats? Yeah, I think they can. Uh, will he do the right thing? I think we have to keep an open mind about that. Does he really, Ed Cox here, Professor, does he really let Garland off the hook? And there's a special counsel in the uh, in the original uh, uh, Trump case, the Russia, Russia and the Mueller investigation. And uh, the with receptive obstruction, the A.G. Barr made the decision, right? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, you never let him off the hook. The attorney general is is where the buck stops. Yep. And it's the attorney general who makes the appointment. And he's he's responsible. But, you know, he, he is delegating authority to somebody else to make an independent decision. We also have Durham, but he hasn't done very much uh, looking at uh, other things. And then, of course, many people raise the question, if there's a special prosecutor against Trump, why isn't there a special prosecutor 
in regard to Hunter Biden. After all, the attorney general of the United States should not be making a decision involving the son of the man who appointed him and could promote him to the Supreme Court. Uh, Now, there is an investigation going on in Delaware by a Trump appointee. So maybe that explains why there doesn't have to be a special prosecutor. But, you know, we're one of the few countries in the world that combine two roles together. The role of the minister of justice, the political appointee who's supposed to try to get his boss renominated, member of the cabinet, that's Garland on the one hand. On the other hand, he's the chief prosecutor. And most other countries, they divide that function. In England, there's a director of public prosecution and a minister of justice. In Israel, the same thing, a minister of justice and then somebody who's in charge of prosecution. Two roles, but in the United States, they merge those roles together, which is why we need special prosecutors. The other countries don't, because their ordinary prosecutor is a special prosecutor. But but nothing here leads to justice. That's the problem. That's it's, the it's, it's justice. The, What's that? When's no, the last time anybody yeah. cared about justice? <laughs> there's no justice here. It's, all, it's the Democrats picking the Democrats. They, they picked the prosecutor that was at the state level, the federal level, and the international level. I didn't even know well, that think, people did that. I think the worst <laughs> abuse is Letitia James, who I like very much as a person. Yep. But she campaigns, campaigns on the promise that she's going to get Trump. If she doesn't get Trump, she loses reelection. She has broken her campaign promise. Should you ever have a prosecutor prosecuting somebody who he's she or he has made a campaign promise to get? That is the worst. Even worse, she she filed the the, the suit. It's a civil suit, but against him yeah. just before her reelection. And but what about yeah. the fact that they filed? They assigned the special prosecutor in the same week that he announced he was running for president, and just twenty four hours after the GOP said that they were going to investigate Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. I mean, this is a political persecution. But let me tell you, Letitia well, got to run I for her money this year with Michael Henry. She yes. really did. Yeah. Now, I, I actually thought Henry was going to beat her. Professor Dershowitz, what is your reaction? Do you think this is a form of political persecution? I think everything is political these days. I, you know, when I was growing up, there really was a separation between politics and justice. Today, everything is political. The Supreme Court has become politicized. Prosecutors are politicized. The FBI has become politicized. Anything. The FBI. It shouldn't happen. By the way, what what happened to the uh, Supreme Court investigation with respect to the leak of the Dobbs? You know, we haven't heard anything about that, even though there was a New York Times story saying there may have been another leak in the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, It has to be exposed and has to be revealed. And there has to be a new law passed by Congress setting up rules with punishments for anybody ranging from a justice to a law clerk to a printer who leaks Supreme Court material and decisions. Another Interesting uh, piece of news came out today. President Biden extending the student loan pause for the sixth time for the sixth time. What what does that mean? Well, it means, again, executive authority over things that ought to be legislative authority. So does that mean uh, he's telling the people of Georgia, vote for my way, vote for the uh, and maybe you'll get ten thousand dollars. Yeah. And also in Georgia, the Supreme Court of Georgia just allowed voting to begin early, even though under Georgia law, you shouldn't be able to have voting during a week when there's a national holiday. Isn't that so, the same problem with the head with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court? What right do they no, have to do under federal constitution a, to do that? Right. No, because that was a presidential election. Article two 
specifically provides presidential elections have to be determined by the state legislature. There are there are not comparable rules for Senate elections. So the state has a lot more authority um, uh, to decide who within the state makes the rules regarding a senatorial election. So there is a difference between a senatorial election and a presidential election. Well, Alan Dershowitz, thank you so much for coming on and, and enjoy Israel. I wish I, you know, we, sometime we'll be with you in Israel. That would be wonderful, wonderful, good. Well, thank you, and uh, maybe Thanks it's time to go to everybody sleep. Everybody, happy Thanksgiving. Shalom. Yeah, happy, happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Do, they certify, do, they, do they have any kind of Thanksgiving yet? Any turkeys there? Lots of turkeys all over. And <laughs> celebrate Thanksgiving in Israel, so we're, we're going to be having some turkey. Thank you so much. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katz Matidis Cats at Night show. In studio, we have Craig Eaton, Ed Cox, Judge Weinberg, John Katz Matidis, and myself, Lydia Serrani. On the line with us right now, we have Andrew McCarthy. He's a columnist for the National Review. He also served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Welcome back to Cats at Night, Andy McCarthy. Nice. Andy, nice to be with uh, you. it's Richard Weinberg. You had this great uh, column. It's called This Week in the Trump Investigations. Could you tell the uh, listeners about it? Well, I, I just think um, we're in a uh, we're in an unfortunate stage where we're going to we already have a proliferation of Trump investigations, and there are apt to be more. In fact, I had written something over the weekend that said the Trump investigations mount that counted that there were seven serious ones. And by the time I was ready to recap what was going on and a few I hadn't discussed over the weekend, there was an eighth. Um, and now we have a special counsel. So even if uh, even if I didn't think that um, the former president were at a stage that um, he's acting in a way that's apt to get him charged, he's an att- attractive target for especially elected Democratic uh, prosecutors throughout the country. Those are, uh, you know, unlike federal prosecutor positions, most of the uh, DA and state attorney general positions around the country are political. So in blue states, blue cities, what you're seeing are uh, elected Democratic attorneys, um, you know, for political reasons. Uh, if they if there's a way that they can bring a case against Trump, that's very popular among the people they need to get elected by to bring a case against Trump. And then the final uh, added component here is the history of special counsels is that they proliferate charges. There's not, I don't think there's been one going back to Watergate that hasn't created crimes just by virtue of the investigation. So I think we're in for a long haul of numerous investigations. And what do you think about this appointment of, uh, of Jack Smith? And in terms of his linkage to the Democratic Party, no, I'm I'm not as concerned about that. You know, I, I've heard a lot of stuff the last couple of days. There, there are people who think very highly of Smith. There are people who um, say it's a it's a mixed bag. I think that this is the kind of chatter that goes on when cases are in an early stage and we haven't really seen evidence. And my view, after you know, for what it's worth, after many many years um, doing this stuff is that cases basically come down to evidence. Uh, and you can talk about personalities and po- politics and who's, um, you know, who's, who's a partisan and who isn't and all that stuff. But in the end, I, you know, I think if the special counsel 
brings a case against Trump that's like Russiagate, where there's no there there. It's just a hoax or it's, you know, it's just basically a fabrication that's going to be and be perceived as an abuse of power. If he brings a case that's got serious charges and, and compelling evidence, it, it's not going to matter who the prosecutor is. That's what will matter. Other than that, as far as the special counsel is concerned, I think it's an exercise in theater because it's meant to convey the idea that there is some detachment or insulation between the Biden administration and the decision whether to charge Trump. And in point of fact, in this system, prosecution is an executive power. All executive power is reposed in the president. Uh, and therefore, Biden and Merrick Garland can't escape the fact that, you know, they got to be big boys here. They they wanted these jobs. Well, you know, sometimes you get a politically fraught investigation and there's no artifice that you can come up with, like naming a prosecutor that's going to take their fingerprints off a decision that has to be made. Andrew Ed Cox here. Uh, how uh, how what do you think about the law that's applicable in the Mar-a-Lago case? Uh, is it certain? Is it clear uh, and can be applied to the facts or you're dealing with the Presidential Records Act that is a very doesn't have any enforcement provisions in it. Right. You're dealing with the president and top secret and he has certain certain rights as commander in chief with respect to top secret things. Do you think the law is clear? And I think that if it was only presidential records and we weren't dealing with any classified information, then this would be a very murky situation because, as you point out, there are no enforcement provisions uh, in the Presidential Records Act. Now, the Justice Department has a theory that another statute does the trick for them, but I don't think there would be a case or thought of bringing a case uh, if that was all that were at stake. I think the two things that are serious here are the classified information, which actually the, under the Espionage Act, it doesn't have to be classified. The fact that it's classified is evidence that it is what the espionage is directed at, which is national defense information. Um, there are, you know, I, I think there's, you know, provisions that are applicable to people who um, get access to classified information because they have privileged positions in the government and then mishandle it. Uh, as far as Trump is concerned with respect to that, I think his best defense is that they didn't prosecute Hillary Clinton for similar behavior. But that's not really a legal defense. It's kind of an equitable defense. And the bigger problem I think he has in terms of a, just a bread and butter crime uh, is misleading the grand jury. I mean, what they're going to argue is that when he uh, when he when he brought the FBI and the Justice Department to Mar-a-Lago on June 3rd and presented them in response to a grand jury subpoena with a package that they represented was all of the classified documents that they still had down there uh, after a thorough search uh, and the the uh, prosecutors and FBI agents had them do an affirmation, which was supposed to, they understood was supposed to be presented to the grand jury where they represented that they had done a thorough search and this was everything. And then it turns out that they have over 100 more. And there's some evidence that they knew. But whose they affirmation was that? Was That's that Trump's or was that the lawyer's? It's the agents for Trump. So there's two lawyers. One of them is his custodian of documents and the other one is um is someone who was acting as a lawyer, but they're both. But don't you have to show knowledge that Trump knew that that wasn't correct? Yeah, I don't think they're going to have difficulty with that. 
Yeah, but th- this is process stuff. Are you going to indict the pres- former president, a presidential candidate, uh, on the process stuff when there's real no anybody- actual claim there? No, I, well, there's, there certainly is an actual claim, but I, I, I think the danger for them is that um, anybody in America, you, me, any of us in this discussion, would be prosecuted for lying to a grand jury. So if they can prove that he did that, that's a very serious offense, especially if it's involving national defense information. And then, you know, you have the overlay here of the fact that some of the stuff – I mean, I think some uh, there's much too much stuff classified in the government, and probably some of the stuff is trivial, but some of it is pretty heavy-duty national defense information, uh, and if it falls into the wrong hands, it could do real damage to the United States. And that's you know, on that's, a that's scale of one to ten, to to what is your uh, feeling about a Trump indictment? Eleven. That is, he's going to be indicted. You agree with Bill Barr that he will be indicted? Yeah, I think it's just a matter for the for the Democrats. It's it's when, not if, and it's when it serves the, you know, their political needs for 2024. So well, it'll be time for when it's the best moment for them politically. But I think they think they have the documents case in the bag already. And what they're trying to do, I hope they don't try to do this because I don't see a case there. But what they're really trying to do is make a case on him on January 6th. I think they already the Justice Department's already decided he was not complicit or at least there's no actionable case on him for the violence of January 6th. The theory that they're trying to pursue there is that the theory, the legal theory that he was pushing that Pence had the authority to not count electoral votes was so frivolous that it's somewhere along the line crossed into fraud. And I think we go down a very dangerous path uh, if we start to treat legal theories that are frivolous as if they were frauds. When I was a prosecutor, if that was the law, fraud, if a frivolous legal theory was a felony, I could have indicted five felonies a day. You know, defense Understood. lawyers are very creative fellows. Andrew McCarthy, we have to move on. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, your, your words are um, interesting. You know? Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. And now uh, let's go from uh, let's go from national and let's go to local. New York State uh, with us today is Lawrence uh, Garland, and he is the uh, chair of Rockland County in New York State uh, of the GOP, and he has some interesting things to say. Uh, tell us, give us some new revelations. What your opinion is? Why uh, things turned out the way they are? Uh, thanks for having me on. Good evening. First, I'd like to say hi to Chairman Ed Cox. Um, and Chairman, Chairman, good to have you. Good to have you on. You know, Mike Lawler had a great victory against Sean Patrick Maloney. How did Mike that happen? An outstanding victory. Uh, well, how it happened is that Mike Lawler, as you know very well, Mike Lawler was a better candidate, and Mike Lawler ran a better race. And uh, Mike Lawler, his messaging was right. He's very disciplined. People liked listening to what he had to say. Uh, and and obviously the results proved that, and we and, and we took down the chair of the D Triple C, um, which is astounding. And you know what? He works hard. Mike works hard. He worked hard he when does. he was the executive he's director under Chairman Cox. He, he spoke he's very a, well. He's a great guy. He's, I'm a big no, fan of Mike. We got two minutes yeah, left uh, before we have to we take a break. Down. Tell so, us so, what you want to tell us. So we're 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 moving forward on the on, on the on the on the, the replacement of Nick Langworthy as as our as our state leader, our state chairperson. 
I'm thinking very seriously about doing that, about running for that 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 seat. As I'm as I'm talk as I'm making phone calls to all the state chairs. In fact, Chairman Cox is on my list for tomorrow. Um, and I want to say about Chairman Cox that that like any, I learned a lot from Chairman Cox. Like any good chairman, he's he's never the the, the person out front. He's always well, it was great to work with work you, that, Chairman. You did a great job in Rockland, turning into a Republican to, county. And I want to say that Ed Cox is. Is, is responsible for the redistricting. People don't know that, and he did a fantastic job. As now, did, Ed, you were telling me before that there's a chance they'll appoint the new appeals court judge, and they're going to oh, go back again? Still, they're still at it. They're, they're changing the composition of the highest court by forcing out the, the chief judge. They're now... They forced out. Yeah, they, her, they forced her out. Jennifer Fiore. Jennifer Fiore, who wrote the opinion yeah. in the redistricting case, and they've got another and, case. So the Democrats got even with her. They forced her out. Yep. And now they're going to appoint their own person and they're going to go back and try to redo it? They got another case that's coming up there that they may get a different decision from the highest court. Uh, it's <laughs> They don't stop. Uh, if you don't, listen, can I do that? I mean, if I don't like the judge's decision, can I get rid of the judge? <laughs> well, a lot of people if you, if you try got that, a super John. majority a in try. the state senate, you can do that, yeah. right, Chairman? Yeah. <laughs> this is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katz Matidis Cats at Night Show. Now on the line with us is author Mark Shaw. He has a series of books uh, regarding JFK, Fighting for Justice. And wh- what other books do you have, Mr. Shaw? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, people are going to wonder what I've done with my life because uh, all I do is write these books. Uh, we started. We started out with uh, with uh, a book about Melvin Belli, Jack Ruby's lawyer. Then we got into the '60 election and the Poison Patriarch. Then uh, I wrote the book, uh, the bestseller, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much About Dorothy Kilgallen. Two books since then: uh, Denial of Justice and Collateral Damage, uh, which connected the deaths of Dorothy Marilyn Monroe and JFK, and now Fighting for Justice that gets inside the uh, Warren commission uh, for the first time. How's that? Today, Mark, is the 59th anniversary (laughs) of the killing of John F. Kennedy. Yes, it is. It's hard to believe. uh, Do we know know at all who killed Kennedy? Well, of course we do. John, have you not been listening to me in all of these radio broadcasts? I want my listeners to know who killed Kennedy. I've got it nailed. Dorothy Kilgallen is the, the boss here. She's the king. She had it right. Uh, it was a revenge killing because Joe, uh, Joe Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy double-crossed uh, those mafia guys that you can't double-cross, and they decided, hey, we got to get rid of JFK, so Bobby Kennedy's going to be powerless as attorney general, and so uh, that's what they did, and, uh, you know, Bobby was powerless the rest of the time. So I, I think Dorothy had it right, John. So, so you think it was the, the mob, uh, a mob hit? Well, I, I, you know, I was, I was thinking, because I thought you might ask me that question this time. Let's go to the source. When uh, Bobby Kennedy was telephoned by J. Edgar Hoover at his Virginia home, uh, the first thing he said, Bobby Kennedy said, when he heard that JFK was dead, was to his, uh, his, um, uh, his PR guy, uh, Ed Guthman, I thought they would get one of us, but I thought it would be me. And then Bobby Kennedy Jr. is the source as well because he's given several speeches through the years. Uh, my dad said it was the guy from New Orleans. My dad said it was, the, was that Marcello. I mean, the motive was so clear there, John, in terms of what happened. And everybody else can come up with own, their own theories and everything. But you and, know, and, I mean, and the first thing that uh, Oswald said when they captured him all the way to jail, he says, I'm a patsy. I'm a patsy. Right. 
Right. Does that mean he didn't do any shooting, or does that mean, uh, well, tell us what you think it means. Well, I think he was the perfect uh, Patsy. And if you go through the years with organized crime, and that's what we have here, uh, you know, they're looking for somebody who, that, 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 that the homicide or the killing, whatever, can be pinned on. And, and that it sends the police in a different direction and, and than with the, who's, who's normally involved. I think Oswald was a part of this. There's no question about it. But he was kind of the perfect guy. His communist ties, his this, CIA ties, everything else. But as you know, when we talked the last time, I've gotten inside the Warren Commission, and one of the things that uh, uh, this uh, whistleblower told me uh, regarding John Sherman Cooper, the, one of the Kentucky uh, from Kentucky, who was on the the Warren Commission, one of the things that he told uh, his legislative assistant, the commission members already know about the Ruby connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. And so, you know, if you if you really just use common sense here, uh, without getting into all the periphery things, um, you know, it, it, you just have to look at motive. And and motive here was to um, uh, kill the president and then silence those people who could uh, bring the uh, uh, you know bring the guilt on back to those people who had organized that killing. Now, how did they? And you, you are you saying the mobsters hired Oswald? How did they find Oswald? Well, uh, Carlos Marcello was the uh, New Orleans Don who had the most to lose here. He had a million-dollar um, empire in New Orleans, and uh, he's the one that Bobby Kennedy deported. You know, Joe Kennedy and Bobby uh, double-crossed uh, those guys uh, because they helped him win the 60 election. And so it's Marcello sitting there in New Orleans. He's about to be deported again, and, and he, he says to himself, you know, I can't let this happen. I, I can't let this go on. And so the motive there then was to go ahead and find what he could do. Well, he had two uh, underlings of his, uh, semi-bosses of his organization in, in Dallas. Uh, Savillo and, uh, and and Campisi were their names, and and they were all running around in Dallas at the same places. Oswald was around there. Ruby had his carousel club and all of that. So I think as smart as those guys are, John, and and you know organized crime uh, individuals, uh, you know they're, they're they're pretty savvy in terms of how to pull a hit. And uh, I think they decided that hey, we can we can get this all done. Uh, Oswald's the so, perfect uh, Mark, Patsy, the perfect guy to 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 get involved with this and hopefully they'll follow that lead and everything and that's exactly what they did uh, Mark, completely Mark, away let, from let ever me, getting let me try another Ed, Cox, let me, Ed Cox has a question. Let me try another theory. Uh, back in 87, I spent four hours alone with Castro uh, in Havana. Four uh, hours? That's a long four time. Four hours from midnight to 4 a.m. And I learned something. I did that, one of those stunts. Too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's a mano-a-mano guy. He shouted right, right in the middle. He said, how'd your father know as a communist? And that was about a conversation they had in uh, Vice President Nixon uh, sent a memo to the uh, President Eisenhower saying, this guy's a communist. And he was trying uh. to deceive everyone in the vice. Anyway, he's a mano a mano guy. Now, President Kennedy was trying to kill Castro. There were attempts yeah. on Castro's life. Castro clearly would want to try and kill Kennedy. And Oswald had connections with uh -huh. Havana and, uh, and the Cuban embassy in Mexico. So why wasn't Castro behind it? Well, it's interesting, uh, Mayor Koch. Uh, you know, that's not uh, Mayor Koch. He died. This is Ed Koch. Oh, this is me. Ed Koch. Oh, pardon, pardon this me. Is, I'm in big trouble again, John. No, no, this is Ed Koch first. first. This is I'm Ed Cox, who's married to Trisha Nixon, and is oh, a, is President Nixon's son-in-law. Well, see. 
<laughs> Nobody tells me these things, so I always get in trouble, John. Oh, it's okay. Well, that's that's anyway. where the mano a mano thing came. That's where I figured it out. So right. he was there with, uh, with yeah. okay, uh, well, Castro. You, you got an, one eye, you got an, eyewitness, an eyewitness report there. Well. Uh, yeah, and I, I can tell you, by the way, you're right. A CIA document that I have in Fighting for Justice and before uh, confirms that uh, Kennedy had uh, his, his, his uh, idea to, to kill Castro as well. So the motive is there for uh, the CIA to have been involved and for, for Castro to be involved as well. But I will tell you this, I've never been able to connect that as well. Just too many uh, unanswered questions about all that and how it could have taken place. Whereas with uh, Marcelo and those guys, uh, the motive is so clear and you can clearly see the link from New Orleans, you know, the double cross and Marcelo and then he's deported and then you go to Dallas and, you know, Dealey Plaza was a death trap. And and again, those those guys don't mess around uh, in terms of uh, uh, when they're going to set up a hit. And uh, as Dorothy Kilgallen said, this was a mafia hit. Well, let me ask you this question: How Judge come? Weinberg? How come? Nice to talk to you again, Mark. How come they sealed the the investigative files of the Warren Commission in that time capsule? What was that about? Well, I, I don't know if that's actually true or not, because I was able to find a legislative uh, assistant, uh, legislative assistant to a Warren Commission member, Senator John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky, who called me in February and started telling me all of these uh, disclosures because uh, he, the senator was so upset about where the Warren Commission was headed. Uh, I don't, I don't agree with the uh, what we're doing. I don't agree with uh, the conclusions that are being done. They say it's for God and country, and I don't agree with that. Uh, and so, you, you know, you had these dissents among the Warren Commission. Now, whether those things have been locked up or not, I was able to get inside the Warren Commission with this very credible witness now and, and look at exactly what they were doing. And some of the some of the revelations were, you know, basically they, they already know about the Ruby connection to or, organized crime. They don't want to touch it. Uh, they say the result is good for God and country, but it's internal corruption. I don't know why. Lyndon Johnson now wants to cover up and move on. You know, they were so obsessed with the Oswald alone theory, because here's why. If it's one guy who did this, then LBJ, uh, you know, excuse me, uh, J. Edgar Hoover can't be blamed because the FBI couldn't find him. But if there's a plot to kill the president, well, yes, they should have known. And then you've got LBJ and you've got these other members of the commission who don't want any investigations uh, other than uh, looking at the Oswald alone theory. It's frightening, frankly, to look at audio tape conversations between LBJ and J. Edgar Hoover when they're picking the commission and they only pick those people that they believe are going to go down the road with Oswald alone. It, it, it was a con job. And wow. so, they betrayed the American people with, with that result. Wow. So, Mark, you, you mentioned Dorothy Kilgallen, and she was ahead of you in working on this story, right? What happened to her? Well, she's, she's uh, John knows I love that woman. Uh, you know, I found out about her by accident. She was uh, uh, on What's My Line television show. May, maybe people remember a quiz show. She was best known for that. But she had a column at the New York Journal American and uh, uh, 200 newspapers across the country. The New York Post called her the most powerful female voice in America. She covered the Dr. Sam Shepard case, the uh, Lindbergh baby kidnapping case and everything. And she and JFK were very, very close friends. I have a couple of new accounts in fighting for justice about how close friends that they were. And when, when JFK was dead, she headed for uh, Dallas. She was at the Ruby trial in the front row. Uh, she was the only reporter out of 400 people to interview Ruby. 
And then she was able to get his Warren Commission uh, testimony and publish it on the front page of the newspaper to the infuriated J. Edgar Hoover. And then I'm able to prove now that she knew about the Warren Commission corruption. And as we got to 1965, in the fall of 65, Marcello, Hoover, all these guys are scared to death of this book she's going to write for Random House. And she's found dead in her E68 Street Department. So who killed her? Well, I don't have any question about it now after my new research. It was Hoover who was involved in this because he wow. had the most to lose. Ooh. Wow. And, and here, here's the proof. Uh, on, the, on the morning after her body is found, uh, uh, about an hour and a half later, agents or those saying they were FBI agents raided her home and took all of her investigative files for the JFK assassination. I still think they're out there. In fact, I, I, I somewhat believe that uh, Joe Biden and all the other presidents hiding uh, the JFK documents that her investigation files might be in there or perhaps information about the Warren Commission corruption. Mark Shaw, thank you for coming on and you 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 have uh, tickled my interest and we're going to have you on again real soon. What's the name of your latest book? It's called Fighting for Justice. It's uh uh, you know, kind of uh, the improbable journey of a, a former co- uh, college dropout at Purdue who somehow or another ended up with all this information and, and the six books that I've written about the JFK. Fighting for Justice by Mark Shaw. I'm sure yes, it's on uh, Amazon, etc. Thank you so okay. much, and we'll catch up again real soon. And all now right. now we have Ryan Payne of Payne um, Management, Capital Management, right? P-A-Y-N-E, not P-A-I-N, like we're seeing in the economy Once right now. Once in a P-A-I-N. Yeah. <laughs> But not today. The market went up right. 397. Hey, the market's up 400 points today. Uh, it's over 34,000, 3,000 points below its high. Is it? Are we going to hit new highs or, or are, they, are we bluffing? Um, I mean, I hate, to, I hate to be too Pollyannish, but I think we got a good shot at it. Um, you know, I thought even the summer when the market rallied, we were there. And, of course, we had another sell-off, but we're, we're well below or above those lows now. And it just seems to me like everything you and I have been talking about, John, is inflation inevitably was going to start coming down. And any forward-looking data, and, of course, the Fed's looking at backwards data, go figure, I don't get it, um, you know, looks really good. I mean, we had oil under $80 a barrel the other day. It's up a little bit from there right now. Um, if you're looking at, obviously, housing has cooled off tremendously. And if you start looking at just like uh, used car sales, all the things that were really pumping up inflation, they're all coming down precipitously. And that's very good for the economy, hence very good for the stock market. And what do you hear in the oil markets? Uh, what, what, what is Saudi Arabia doing? There's rumors that they're going to uh, uh, turn it back on again, turn it off again. What have you heard? Well, it sounds like they're, they're being pretty strong in their posture that they aren't going to stop with their cuts. They're going to keep their cuts in place. So the question is, is it because China again now is on lockdown because of COVID? So it's one or the other. I think maybe because China right now is still restricting their economy. That's probably a bigger reason why oil prices are down. Um, and you probably know better than me on the ground floor. It doesn't seem like we're going to be able to pump that much more uh, oil here in the U.S. But if we could do that, I mean, your, your thesis has been we could be at like $75 a barrel. And if we're there, I mean, that's, that's phenomenal for this. As of right now, my, my prediction was if, if President Biden opens up some of the spigots in Alaska, uh, Canada, North America, $65 a barrel. And the inflation goes away, and maybe we, maybe we won't kill the country with high interest rates. 
So, so Ryan. Uh, Ed Cox. Yes. The uh, the Saudis said that they were going to uh, to cut production. Did they do that before or after the election? I, I think they do it probably after the election at this point. I yeah. mean, I, I think at this point they're, they're going to hold off on that. Do you think sure. there's a relationship between that and Khashoggi mm-hmm. getting immunity, that a deal was made uh, when uh, when the president was in Saudi Arabia? They would no, announce I, cuts, but they would do them after the election? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think that's, that's absolutely the case. And, and I just don't think Saudi Arabia wants lower oil prices. Um, you know, the profitability that they have on their oil at these prices is outrageous. So I can't see any situation where they really want lower oil prices. And I don't know if you see differently on that. Ryan Payne, Thanksgiving is just, what, two days away, right? What was Thanksgiving? Today's Wednesday? Today's Wednesday or Tuesday? Tuesday, Today's Tuesday, Tuesday. two days away. God, it's been a long week already. So uh, according to one report, Thanksgiving dinner overall up 20 percent due to inflation. Is that a conservative estimate? Is that accurate? We're hearing what, $1.99 a pound for regular brands of turkey, organic, double that. Is there any uh, relief in sight? I don't think there is for for Thanksgiving. Apparently, stuffing this year is up uh, dramatically as well. So I think your your turkey feast is not going to be pretty. But I do say this, looking to the holiday season, I think people are going to spend money. Um, I I think the one resilience that you've seen as the American consumer here throughout this whole year with high inflation is uh, Americans are still spending money. And I think that's indicative of the fact that I talk about this all the time. Americans have jobs. We've got a tight labor market. Wages are going up. And if we're right about inflation uh, eventually, eventually coming down, maybe not for Thanksgiving, I just think the economy is going to be in good shape next year. You know, I know a lot of strategists, economists are talking about falling off a cliff. I don't buy it. I've been right so far. The, you know, we haven't seen that. And I think that bottom line is we're going to have a resilient consumer coming in next year. I think you got to be bullish on America here. And I, I think we're going to we're going to thrive next year, despite what a lot of people are saying. Ryan Payne, you're on with Steve Moore every Saturday right after Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow's 10, 10 o'clock a.m. in the morning to one. And you and Steve Moore from one to two. I'll be listening this uh, Saturday. It only changed your life. Sounds good, John. Thank Appreciate you so it. much. Cats at night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. Now on the line with us, Dr. Peter Mikolos, our resident medical genius who knows everything about everything. Welcome back to Cats at Night. Great to be with you guys. Tonight we're going to talk about something that's becoming really a national uh, disability and productivity uh, issue, which is long-haul COVID syndrome. It seems that the pandemic seems to be burning out, but the people who had covid uh, one in eight are showing signs of long-haul COVID syndrome. And this includes things like brain fog, memory loss, fatigue, insomnia, anxiety, depression, heart palpitations, uh, vertigo, which is dizziness, and uh, tinnitus. And what we're learning about this virus, which is unlike things, unlike the flu viruses, it actually attacks three levels. Like the flu, you get the upper respiratory fever and body aches. But uh, like Ebola, which causes bleeding, this one causes clotting. So it turns out to be a clotting virus that's stimulating a clotting cascades. And that's why we're seeing a lot of strange cardiac uh, issues and uh, lung issues and uh, also things like even some eye clots and things I've seen more recently uh, in the back of the eye, which is very interesting. And uh, the cause is that the immune system, the third part of this virus is that it, it wreaks havoc on the immune system and it generates massive amounts of inflammation. 
So uh, the concern is how do you treat this and uh, how do we help people? Uh, one of the things is that they are forming now nationally. If you look around, many hospitals have long haul COVID centers. For example, at Columbia University right here in New York, they have a uh, post-COVID rehabilitation center in the Department of Rehab and Regenerative Medicine that people can uh, get help and seek. Uh, we're also finding out that they're giving people short pulses of steroids because of the inflammation that's happening with this COVID, and that seems to be uh, helping people. We're also noticing uh, in blood tests, that's why you have to go see your doctor, uh, things like vitamin B12 levels are lower in some of these long-haul COVID people. Their vitamin D levels are lower. They're finding that there's interference in how the body uses and processes iron, and there's a lot of women who were found to have lower iron levels, which also affects your energy and weakness. Some of the diets, uh, like at the Mayo Clinic at their center, they're telling people to eat the Mediterranean diet because it's anti-inflammatory, avoid inflammatory foods like sugar, red meat, processed foods, and supplements like uh, magnesium and also something called glutathione, which is an antioxidant, has also been found helpful and is being used in some of these long-haul COVID centers. And also sleep hygiene is very important. Don't have caffeine after 12 p.m. because when you're up at night, it affects your sleep hygiene. And some people who feel depressed yeah. if you live like right That's here in the 12 noon. And not, yeah, I guess 12, 12 noon. noon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 12 noon. Yeah, How do you well, get through the afternoon? Just have one morning coffee. No, because the, the caffeine stays in your system for over 12 hours. Right, and the people, they're finding that the people who sleep a lot more, their their body, your healing occurs during he, he, during sleep. You're, 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 you're fasting also, and your gut is working on the immune system, and you're sleeping well. But And also, if you feel uh, depressed, anxious, and you're really not feeling well in New York, you can just call 888-NYC-WELL, W-E-L-L, and someone will talk to you and help you because a lot of people are suffering from uh, depressive symptoms and nobody understands why. People who never had psychiatric symptoms are are experiencing uh, these things. So when you do get COVID, as we always tell people from the beginning, please get treated right away. There are antibody options, antiviral options. Uh, you know, it's good to have a pulse oximeter in your house because when you're not feeling well and you call your doctor, they'll ask you what's your oxygen, your pulse. And when your pulse is high, that's a sign you're dehydrated. That's another thing you need to stay well hydrated especially now as the winter season is coming. And when you see your oxygen dropping, you know, that's another sign you need to consult with your physician immediately. But there is help out there. This is real. You're not alone. Many people are experiencing this, but we wanted to update our listeners on the latest that's happening in long-haul COVID syndrome. Doctor, I, I, have, I have a question for you. This is Craig Eaton. COVID yes. is now going wild in China. Do we know what version of COVID that is? And is that something we need to worry about here in America? Yeah, well, what's happening, as we've said in the beginning, that COVID wants to live. So it yeah. becomes much more contagious, but less lethal. Yes, what happens is in countries that are large, like China, where they don't really have a health care system that can handle it, what they do is you do a lockdown, the same thing with New Zealand. Why? Because it'll expose the weaknesses of socialized health care, and they don't have enough ICU beds. So you'll have people strewn in the street uh, with with uh, symptoms. So yes, of course, we worry about it. But right now we are blessed. Like I have a lot of people in other parts of the world, they couldn't even get antivirals or antibodies. We're so blessed that we're in the United States and we have access to treatments. That's the difference. I think we were much better prepared now to handle it. We're in these other places. The only treatment they really have on a mass scale is lockdowns because 
they, they'll they have bodies everywhere, and it doesn't look good for some of these governments to have, you know, people lying outside the emergency rooms like we had in places like Queens and Brooklyn's in the, in the middle of the pandemic when we had, you know, refrigerators and morgues outside the hospital. So we don't want to get there. But again, we have treatments now thanks to Operation Warp Speed and American Ingenuity. And uh, keep listening to WABC to stay healthy and keep up the great work on Cats at Night. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Michalos, and uh, thank you, uh, Judge Weinberg, uh, Ed Cox, not Koch, Ed Cox, <laughs> and, and uh, Craig Eaton, uh, Lydia Serrani, and what do we stand for? Truth, Truth justice, justice, in the American way. way. God bless America. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.